Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckel. I'm James Ward. You had an observation that you wanted to. You want to start, start there? With. Yeah. Okay. Sure, okay. So this was something I tweeted this week, uh, where I said developer experience is often terrible because we'd rather solve hard technical problems than solve hard user experience problems. Somebody pointed out this is actually true for easy user experience problems. And then Brian Getz had a good follow-up that I think uh, said it better than I did. He said, you mean we'd rather solve the problems we enjoy solving rather than the ones that need solving? It sounds so obvious when he says it. I know. God, he's just so good. He is. He's, he, that, that dude is so smart. He is so smart. <laughs> Um, so I've been thinking about developer experience a lot lately and why it's so bad now, wait, generally. Do you mean, I mean, the way you originally said it, I would have almost said user experience is so bad because developers are solving the problems they want to solve rather than. I think it's true for both. So if, if I'm using, if I'm a user of a developer tool, my mm -hmm. user experience is what I'd call developer experience. Ah. If I am a user of my banking app, I would just call that a user experience. User experience. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So developer experience is just a subset. So you're narrowing of, it down to developer tools, the experience of the, using developer tools. Yeah. And maybe this is true universally with all user experience. Mm -hmm. What I care most about is developer experience and the tools a, that I use. You're a that's, developer advocate. That's right. Well, and I'm a developer and I use these yeah. tools all day, every day. Right. right. And so what, there, I often get frustrated with the state of our tools just because... I think tools, platforms, frameworks, programming languages, like everything that I use as a developer, I often get frustrated by the experience being poor. And I've been trying to think, why are the experiences poor? Because, I mean, this is a very, you're, you're looking at a glass half empty, whereas I look at it and I go, man, the tools are so much better now. Yeah that you know i can be so much more productive because i don't have to well and and admittedly i didn't actually start using the JetBrains tools until like last december you know i was just using yeah. a plain text editor and 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 so i'm still kind of on a high from that I was like wow i don't have to do all this stuff it just tells me and gives me coaching and you know IntelliJ is ama an amazing tool, and I think that they really care about and focus on developer experience. Mm -hmm. I think Heroku is also kind of one of the gold standards for... Sure. For cloud-based. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting with those examples is that there is a cultural value and focus on the experience being great. Mm -hmm. And so it certainly is possible for people to create great developer experiences. But even I don't tend towards wanting to solve those problems. I naturally tend towards wanting to solve hard technical problems. Mm. And so I was thinking about it for myself. Why don't I create good developer experiences in the things that I build? I, I have an answer for that because you're too smart. Well, so let's say you're at a well, company. Well, let me explain yeah. that. Let me explain that because the reason that I, because I create a lot of tools, tooling for my own things, because I discover that if I have to do something more than once, or if it looks like, you know, there's a duplication involved, I might as well just stop and develop a tool to do that, because I'm going to mess it up yeah. if I do it by hand. And then 
what I've discovered over time is that when I go back to a project, if I haven't laid things out nicely, I'm not going to, I'm going to have to spend a lot of time figuring out how does this tool work? What is it supposed to do? I don't remember. I, I will forget it because, you know, I've moved on. So I've started making tools that help me when I go back to them and they, you know, explain what's going on. There's a tool that um, a library that I use in Python called Click, and it makes really nice command line utilities that, you know, have all these different commands and documentation, you know, that just you type the command and it says, oh, here's what this does. And here are all the sub commands and here's how to use it. Nice. And it's like, I have to have that because I'm, you you'll know, forget, I will how to, forget how to use your own program. I will forget how to use my own program because, you know. And so being being guided or choosing something that provides a great developer experience out of the box is helpful and valuable to you. Because I'm serving my own needs. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and you know, those, those people who are really good at Unix command line stuff and you go, oh, I need to do this thing. Oh, I'll just type out these commands because they remember them all somehow. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't remember yeah. all those things. So yeah, that's why. Anyway, yeah. what was your argument? So if you're in a company that optimizes its hiring and, and talent to being really smart people, who are focused on solving, generally focused on solving really hard technical problems. I think that's very different from a company like Heroku that instead focuses its talent um, and its hiring on people that want to solve user problems, in their case, developer experience problems. And we and should wanna... probably point out that you used to work for Heroku. So that's why yes. you know about That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there just is this cultural force of valuing and hiring for for that goal. And I think that the, the majority of people creating developer tools, it, they're not as interested in, in solving the developer experience or user experience problems. They're uh, working with Scala uh, and the Scala ecosystem. It became pretty like, look at SBT. SBT is, it's gotten better, but it is not a great developer experience. It's been a pretty painful developer experience for years and years and years. It was created by one of the smartest people I know. And I think that was it? Uh, Mark, um, oh God, forgetting his last name, but Mark, right. he used to, he was one of the early uh, TypeSafe, mm -hmm. now Lightbend employees. He mm -hmm. was probably even there when it was Scalable Solutions, but, um, but he, he, he's a physicist. He's like a doctorate physicist and he created SBT. And so SBT, it's funny because it's called the simple build tool because it probably was simple to and Mark, it's not. but it is like the most complex build tool I'd ever used. But to Mark, it was probably simple. But um, so, so that's just one example where really smart people were creating the tools that not smart people like me were using and having a hard time with them. Well, smart. That's an interesting yeah, term, you know, it's right. kind of over, it's like, yeah, you, there's different kinds of smart, you know, there's different uh, kinds it, of smart. So my focus has been on how do I explain something in a way that everybody can get it. And that takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of focus in that direction. And I miss out on, you know, some of the 
fun programming things that you can do if you're not worried about that. If you're just going, oh, I want to solve this problem and, you know, do these things. And, and like when I'm solving my own problems, it really is super enjoyable to get those kinds of results. Yeah. So I can see the draw to that, but I can also, there's a lot of satisfaction in make, we have some people in the Python community who are really good at figuring out what is going to be easy for mm. the user to use. How can we make this as simple as possible, but still yeah. powerful? Yeah. And I mean, those people, well, and in the Scala community, you have, um, who's the guy from the Far East? Uh, he, um, Bill's a big fan of him. Okay. Um, I can't remember his name, <laughs> yeah. but he's like, he creates these libraries that people. Oh, oh like Ammonite. Um, from, um, Howie, mm. uh, don't think so. But anyway, there are yeah. people in the Scala community who create these libraries that everybody goes, Oh, that's so clear. And it's so easy to use, Yeah, you know? So, and, the, and there are, I don't know, how do, how do we create more of those people? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause they've got both the technical skills and then they also understand yeah. how to make this something that's easy to understand and use. Well, and they value that. They value that. Yeah. And, exactly. and so they, th there's a motivation for them to, to mm -hmm. want to do that. Whereas I think what I was trying to say in my tweet is that I think most developers, they don't value that and they don't want that. They want to, they want to, they would much rather, they value solving the hard technical problems much more. Well, cause of the buzz, you know, it's like playing a video game or whatever when you level up, I guess, because I don't. I keep looking for a game that I want to play. Um, and, and then it releases endorphins. So what they're, yeah. what they're all really after is the endorphin release. And yeah. they don't maybe realize that by creating a tool that everybody loves, you get a lot of that over mm. time rather than the immediate, oh, the I've solved hit. this problem. Yeah. yeah. In the Python, when you say, what is it, import this or whatever in Python, it has the kind of Python manifesto mm -hmm. thing. Yes. Is there something in there about about developer experience or making like? Well, it's um, can run it right now and see. I'm. I feel like there is something in there that. Uh, let's see the Zen. Okay, so this is yeah, the Zen Python. Yeah, somebody I know from the community. Beautiful is better than ugly. Explicit is better than implicit. Simple is better than complex. Complex is better than complicated. Flat is better than nested. Sparse is better than dense. Readability counts. I guess yeah. that would be part of it. Special cases aren't special enough to break the rules. Although practicality beats purity, errors should never pass silently. Mm, like that one. I guess. Although what we've been talking about, you know, with you know, the monadic chains, they do pass silently until the end, but anyway, let's, uh, unless explicitly silenced. Okay. Right. I guess that yeah. solves that in the face of ambiguity review, refuse the temptation to guess. I like that. There should be one and preferably only one obvious way to do it. Although that way may not be obvious at first, unless you're Dutch, he's making a reference to Guido von Rossum, who's Dutch yeah. now is better than never. Although never is often better than right now. Uh, see, Tim is brilliant. Yeah. If the implementation is hard to explain, it's a bad idea. There, yeah. we're, there yeah. we're out to it. If the implementation is easy to explain, it may be a good idea. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Namespaces are one honking great idea. Let's do more of those. Huh. I love that. I love that 
the Zen of Python kind of sets the, the foundation for what's valued in the Python community. And I think that those things create a culture. The Zen of Python creates a culture that values making things easy. And you can see by the, the trajectory of Python's growth, I think it's, it's working. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and that doesn't see, I would say that sums up more the technical pillar of the community, but then there's at least one other pillar, which is how do we treat people? Yeah. And yeah, Guido yeah. has always been like, yeah. be, you know, be nice. The person who's asking this question might be 13. Yeah. And, and, and it really puts, you know, just that one phrase, which stuck in my head, really puts it in perspective. You know, you wouldn't abuse a child. Mm. Um, mm. And so, assume whoever you're talking to and you're trying to answer their question. Anyway, he's, you know, instilled that in the culture yeah. from the beginning. Yeah. And he also, cause I, I just finished the atomic Kotlin like last week. It's up on, um, it's up on lean pub now. And, um, yeah, that's exciting. It is, it is. It's, it's like, it feels like an accomplishment and I feel like it's good work. Um, but I was talking about Python and I said that um, as kind of putting everything into perspective, why would you choose Kotlin? And so let's look at these historic languages. And uh, I think the first sentence was that Guido wanted to, he had this vision of programming for everyone. Yep. And that, that kind of fits with it. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I. It's, it's interesting to think about the Zen of Python as being the, I would say developer experience manifesto or culture, um, mm -hmm. cultural values of the Python community. But then there is also the other side around how do we treat each other? Mm -hmm. um, and it's cool. You, you, I'm sure need both to have a healthy culture. Yeah. Yeah. But, exactly. but I think that, that the Zen of Python is such a great summary of great, developer experience right and it, it you know you look at this and you go well if i follow this i'm gonna write code that people can read yep and that makes sense to them and yeah what's interesting is that that i think this is very different from a zen of something else that may be more um do the most efficient thing possible or like there's the, you could have a, have a manifesto like this that is not at all focused on the developer experience. Sure. And so that's, I think what, what I'm, what I think is unique and interesting about the Python community is how they have focused so much on the developer experience and, and most people love it and it's growing like crazy. Yeah, it's the language that taught me to not worry about efficiency. Because <laughs> I I came from, I mean, like one of the first projects that I did was I wrote in assembly language, a floating point math library for this uh, box, this uh, multimeter. And, um, and so I was, you know, thinking very low level efficiency from doing that. And it took me until I started working with Python because I would go, oh, I could write the code this way, but that wouldn't be efficient. So I'll do it this other way. And then I discovered the more complicated, messy way was slower. Hmm. And that if you just do it the obvious way, 
it's going to run fine. Huh. And if it's not running fine, then you investigate that, you know, mm -hmm. use a profiler and find out where it's the bottleneck it was, which is never where you think it is. Yeah. I would say I, I, I'm going to stand by that. It's never where you think it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, so you're always optimizing for the wrong thing if you start prematurely optimizing, yeah. but most of the time now the language will, will take care of you. Yeah. And I think that's true with a lot of languages. So do you think in a community that doesn't necessarily value developer experience, is it worth trying to change that or, or do I just give up and, and cause I feel like I've been on this path of, I'm going to change culture. I'm going to, I'm going to get developers to care about the developer experiences that they create. I don't think that's a bad thing, but I suspect your strategies may need some rethinking. It's like, how do you change culture? So, so one of the strategies that I have around this was uh, my friend Ray Sang and I, uh, we created this principles of developer experience, which is four principles that help you determine um, if, a, if a developer experience is good or bad. And what are those principles? Um, one is, uh, do the simplest thing that could possibly work. I really learned that one from you. Um, which I didn't make that one up. That I know you didn't, but the, you're the one that instilled that value in And me. that one's a little bit like, um, the, um, uh, what is it? The <sighs> Occam's razor, uh -huh. because Occam's razor is, well, people think it's, the simplest way is the right way. But actually Occam's razor just says, try the simplest way first. Mm -hmm. Cause if, and if you think about it, it's, it's just a very basic way to approach something. Why wouldn't you try the simplest thing first? Because if it works, you don't have to try all the complicated ways. Right. So it's not as, but, but you'll see this in movies and things like, Oh, we're using Occam's razor where the simplest way is always the right way. No, yeah. it's not. It isn't. And, and with that one, I, I went back and found the original quote and it was huh. try the simplest way huh. that could possibly work. Huh. Try that. And so it's really just a variation of Occam's razor. Huh? Anyway, that's awesome. Yeah. I didn't know that all the backstory on that. So, um, so I actually, I, th I think I should start with the first one. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I got them out of order because right. um, there is a kind of natural order to the way that Ray and I define them. So the, the kind of starting one is respect the user's knowledge and goals. Hmm. And as an example, people do a lot of evaluation of developer experience. And what I've seen often happen is that they, when they do an evaluation of a developer experience that they've created, what they'll do is they'll usually base it on a piece of documentation. So we'll say that, oh, the users got through this piece of documentation easily or whatever. But what, the, what that often excludes is that that documentation may not actually align with what the user is actually trying to accomplish. May not, usually doesn't. Yeah. So as a, a practical example of this, we could think that that uh, a user wants to put their application into a Docker container, upload that Docker container to a website, 
deploy that Docker container onto a service that will run it, have a HTTP endpoint for that service. Like we could think that that's what the user wants, but oftentimes that is not what the user wants. The user just wants to take their piece of source code that they're working on and get it running up on the internet. And that's ultimately what their goal is in this, in this use case. And so, so, Docker is one way to do that. Exactly, right? And so so it's it's real easy to focus our thoughts around our developer experience and our evaluation of a developer experience on the technical kind of nitty-gritty steps that are needed when really what I'm what this what this first principle of developer experience says is no, focus on what the user is actually trying to accomplish. And this is where Heroku is just amazing. It's like like you just get push Heroku master and guess what? Your application is up on the internet. It's such a wonderful developer experience. And are they using like Docker under the covers or what? They have some other. They don't. They, they use something else. But Okay. Um, their own stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then respecting their knowledge means that like I, I want every developer to use Unison. I think it's an amazing programming language. It's so forward thinking and all that. But that if I were to, if you were to say, how do I build a REST service? And I'm like, oh, just use Unison. Like that is not respecting not your, your current knowledge. Your current knowledge is Kotlin and Python. And so if I want to respect your current knowledge, I need to come to you and say, okay, here's how we can accomplish your goal with what you know today. Mm-hmm. And that's not saying that we can't always help people take a step forward into something, something new and great, but there's another rule that but intertwines. Telling me, well, it's almost like how Java got invented. It was like, here, you guys, make this set-top box so we can sell it. They're going, we don't like C++. We're going to invent a new language instead of doing what you told us to do. That's yeah. Or what you see on Stack Overflow a lot. Yeah. And somebody goes, I'm trying to solve this problem. Well, why don't you do it this other way that yeah. I know? Yeah. It's like, that doesn't yeah. help. Yeah. I there It's... It's a, it's not a um, either or situation mm-hmm. because there definitely can be cases where, where you need to help move people forward into a different path. So it's not saying that we don't ever do that. It's just saying we need to respect where they are today. Right. And when you, for example, go to Stack Overflow and ask a question, you're trying to solve that problem now, not, whereas maybe when you're between projects, oh, now it's time to take a step back, do maybe even do a formal retrospective and see what worked and what didn't yeah. and say, oh, how can we do this better next time? Yeah. Maybe that's changing to a language that knows about versioning in, intrinsically like Unison does. Yeah. Yeah. So, which I think eventually other languages will start we'll adopt, doing. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so that's really the first principle. The first then, okay. then do the simplest thing that could possibly work that's is the two. second one. Okay. And the third one is... Try the simplest thing. Try the simplest thing that could yes. possibly work. Yeah. Uh, the third one is learning should be incremental. So we very often in our developer experiences don't help people take the next step and know what the next step step is. And, and so in, that's what it pairs with do the simplest thing that that or try the simplest thing that could possibly work because we all we do want to start simple but often the things that we're trying to accomplish are not simple sure. and so how do we get from that that 
simplest thing to the next level and then to the next level and then to the next level. And so it's just highlighting that we should help, we should think about laying out a path that makes this incremental. Um, so as an example of this, we, uh, I created this thing called cloud run button, which makes it so on a GitHub repo, you just click a button and it deploys that application on Google's cloud. So there's a button cloud run. on the repo. Yeah. In the readme. Oh, yeah. Oh, you just put in, you just stuck in like some HTML or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just a button markdown tag or whatever mm -hmm. you're using markdown. So you just click the button and it takes that repo and deploys it on the cloud. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's the simplest thing. If you're, if your goal going back mm -hmm. to principle one, if your goal is to go from source code to something running on the cloud, it's the simplest thing that could possibly work. But what we explicitly do when we when someone clicks the button is we tell them all the steps that we're actually doing for them oh when they push the button you list the steps yeah as they're actually happening oh and nice. so 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 slowly guides them into understanding the deeper that's right part of it. oh we're building a docker container oh we're storing that docker container on the container registry oh we're telling cloud run to deploy that container so we actually tell them all the steps that we're actually Going but they through. don't have to figure those steps out before they can get something deployed. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so, so for that specific goal, we're trying to make that experience incremental and the learning of it incremental and not make the user have to make a bunch of decisions that they may not know the answer to. Uh, so we could ask them, do you want this service to be authenticated or unauthenticated? We don't ask them that. We just make it, we just assume that if they're clicking on some random GitHub repo that they want this, that their goal is to make a public service. And so we just make it public. They can always, uh, the repo can actually say it wants it to be private. But um, anyway, so we try to significantly limit the number of decisions that the user has to make in order to do that and then help them learn about the, the decisions that were made for them, uh, the, the uh, steps that were taken. That and these are examples that you've created in your uh, GitHub repos. Anybody can put the button on there. Anybody can put the button in, yeah. but you're, you're putting this in your example so that they can easily. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I, I have buttonized all my samples. Okay. Now, nice. now there, Cloud Run Button is actually, in some ways, not a great example of of this because uh, it. One thing that I've been meaning to work on in Cloud Run Button but haven't done yet is great. We've deployed the application, so that accomplished one goal. But there's something that the user is going to want to do next, which is I want to set up a continuous delivery pipeline for my application. Hey, let's say that that's their next goal. And today, Cloud Run Button doesn't tell them how to get to that, how to move to that next step in what they may want to do. And so while it's incremental for like the, the one particular goal, it stops at a point. And so that's something I need to do is, is help the user learn how to take the next step. And that would make it even better on this particular uh, principles of developer experience. So are you thinking like a continuous delivery button in addition to the cloud run button? Yeah, ex okay. yeah, exactly. And it would so, just configure that for you. That's right. Yeah. Oh, so it'd say, that would be nice. it would say, great, you've deployed your application, you've done it once, and now you probably want to start making changes to this application and running them through a continuous delivery pipeline. Click here to do that. I like it. So that would, that would make it a much more uh, incremental well, especially for people learning about this thing. And like, again, it's like, oh, well, I got the thing working. I'll just work with it the way it is. 
rather than having to go learn this continuous delivery stuff. But if you go, no, we'll take you into it and show you how great it is. Because yeah. I, I find myself having to say, no, no, I'm going, even though it's going to take more work now, I'm going to benefit so much by doing this. But that only comes from experience. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I push myself into, okay, automate everything. Yeah. And, and so if you have a button that gets you there, then you'll learn how valuable it is and you'll internalize it. Yeah. So, so that's three. Yep. So then the last one is, uh, I think we say it as wasted time is a waste. And in developer experiences, they, they often are, if there's not a focus on the developer experience, they will just waste the developer's time for no reason whatsoever. So an example of this one is uh, on Heroku, if you want to add a Postgres database to your application, you like click a button or whatever, you could do it in lots of ways, but you click a button, add Postgres, and it is like instantly available. Whereas on most other cloud services, when you want to add Postgres, it takes like 10 minutes for the thing to come up. And what Heroku does, because they actually really care about developer experience, what they do is they keep a pool of Postgres databases ready to go. So that as soon as somebody says, I want one, they just pull one out of this pool. And it's like, God, they actually like thought about making this a great experience. And did the work. And did the work. For saving. I mean, I could totally see how somebody would go, ah, that's just 10 minutes. That doesn't really matter. Let's work on something else. Yeah. Huh. That's so. Another example. Of this is is things that uh, that fail early. Mm -hmm. So I I was trying to deploy an application on some service, and thirty minutes after I told it to start, it failed with an error. And it's like, God, I really wish I would have like gotten that error like at the very beginning, instead of you know after waiting thirty minutes for this thing. Well, to that's happen. the whole reason we do unit testing the way that we do, so that. You make a change, you know instantly that it's failed. So you go, oh, it was that change that I made, That's not right. piled and piled of changes. And then you go, oh, something failed. And exactly. now we don't know. Yeah, yeah that, that immediate response yeah. tells us so, so much. Fail early. Mm -hmm. Don't waste the user's time with things that can be optimized through pools and caches and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But you have to actually value a great developer experience to invest the time to, to do this. Well, more than that, you have to know what it is. You can't be someone who just says, Oh, I'll just do all this stuff by hand. Right. Which, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. You, you really have to understand what those things are and be looking for them Yeah, saying, Oh, this is, this is problematic. So, um, I have a question that's a little different, well, significantly different, I guess, which is I keep coming across this uh, low code, no code <laughs> meme that's going around. And every article that I read about it, because I'm trying to figure out what do they mean, it's like saying, oh, this is going to be great and it's going to change everything but they never say what it is. And it really smells like, I don't know if you remember when we had the, uh, what did they call it? The AI revolution or something in the nineties. Yeah. yeah. And it turned out to be complete marketing horse Focus. manure. <laughs> and, and it's like, this really smells like that to me. Cause I haven't ever 
seen an example of it or anything? Do you know what it means? Yeah. Uh, working at Salesforce, I had a lot of experience with no code and low code and Salesforce is using that marketing terminology a lot okay. to describe their platform. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, most developers, I think, are using general purpose programming languages, Python, Java, whatever, and are using libraries and frameworks to accomplish some goal. But it turns out companies have a hard time hiring skilled developers who know how to use a general purpose programming language to build a phone app or a web app or whatever they need to build. And so... Uh, so the one possible solution to this problem is let's make it much easier for people to build stuff so that you don't have to be a 20 year programming veteran to be able to deliver something. But haven't we been trying to do that all along? Make it much easier to build stuff. I mean, I feel like that's always been. So people goal. have been trying to do it with general purpose programming languages. Right. And I think Python is an amazing example of, of non veteran programmers being able to deliver things sure. very well. I think Java, one of the reasons it's been so successful is, is for mm -hmm. this reason as well. Um, but there's been other efforts which say, okay, what if we, what if we didn't use general purpose pro programming languages to do this? Mm -hmm. What if we instead made like GUI builders? Uh, we made, um, very limited programming languages, DSLs. Usually these are... Yeah, uh, I mean, how is this different from the idea of DSLs? It, it's Domain intertwined. specific languages. Thank you. Um, it's intertwined because there definitely can be uh, DSLs in the low-code version of this. Uh, but the idea is just to put so many guardrails on what the user can do that you really constrain... You constrain the programming ability so much that it's much easier for people to learn. So, and I think Salesforce has probably been the most successful at doing this. There's a lot of people who don't come from programming backgrounds, don't do any general purpose programming and are building web applications and mobile applications using Salesforce. Hmm. And so Salesforce has a, a way to build stuff with no code. And then if you need more flexibility, then you can drop down to their DSL, which is called Apex. It's a mm -hmm. Java-like programming language, but very constrained. You can't even, you can't do libraries like you. It, it is kind of a database trigger language, like PL SQL almost. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so it's very constrained in what you can do. You can write web pages, web page backends, and some of that kind of stuff with it too. But so it's kind of been. What's interesting is that what often happens with these low code programming environments is that people need more and more power. And so then there's just this endless like feature creep to the language where it ends up creeping towards a general purpose language. And so, so I think that there is certainly validity in the no code, low code, uh, the need for it. What, what I've, what I've been questioning lately is can't we just do this and shouldn't we just do this on top of the general purpose programming languages and create layers of usability around them so that when we need more power, we can, we can just always drop down to that, that, uh, the lower level general purpose programming language. One of my first, um, like eye opening experiences with Python 
was, I don't know, this is a long time ago, because I started using Python in 97, I think. <laughs> and, um, but I remember saying, oh, here's a problem I want to solve. I wanted to like resize a bunch of images. And I thought, well, you know, based on past experience, this is going to take a while to figure out. And I found the, I think, you know, there's an image library or something. I don't know if it's uh, part of the standard distribution or one of the opens. Anyway, I thought, oh, well, this will help. And then I think I had the problem solved within five minutes because it was like, oh, here's how you resize it. You know, it had exactly that. So mm -hmm. it seemed very, I mean, I could see somebody who doesn't know much about Python who has a problem to solve and going, oh, I wonder if this library will do it. And then they're done. Yeah. And that's kind of sort of what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And Python's library ecosystem enables essentially a low code experience for a lot of people uh -huh. because NPM and Java are, are similar in that you just grab a library and and write a couple lines of code and you're done. And it's easy. Well, see, I think the key is that it's easy enough to use because one of my first experiences with a library was using C and here's this library that's supposed to do something. And then, then they said, oh, and you have to allocate some storage and then you have to release the storage. And there was a bunch of weird, you know, complicated low level yeah. things that I had to do. But now that... You know, we have garbage collectors and things like that. It's just make the object, call some operations on the object. Yep. Okay, you're done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so I think what will be interesting is, it, do will we see people using the general purpose languages for the low-code, no-code experiences? One of the, this actually relates to another tweet that, that I had teed up to maybe talk about uh -huh. where... Um, I said, uh, mm. so in my tweet, I said, superior tooling is often cited as a primary reason for declarative languages. And yet somehow I've never experienced superior tooling for a declarative language. Most often the tooling is abysmal. So in, in this context and how it relates to the previous one is that oftentimes low code is a declarative. No code is based on a declarative language okay. because you can build tooling around a declarative language mm -hmm. is, is been one of the arguments for, for creating all these custom declarative languages. Mm. And so then when you want to take the escape hatch, because the UI builder around the declarative language is insufficient, then you can drop down and actually write the code. So, uh, actually get into you have the, a way to do everything that you need to do that's right and so mm -hmm. so a lot of times and is the case with salesforce is that you start in a ui builder that's creating declarative code for you mm -hmm. if you need more power you, you tweak the declarative you code tweak the declarative code and then if you need more power then there's usually a procedural language that you can drop down to behind mm -hmm. that so there is a nice escape hatch process but where it falls usually this falls off is like we talked about before is that when you reach the limits of that, that procedural language, you're not in a general purpose programming language. So you hit the cliff and you're stuck. And so, and, and then there's, there's also a similar cliff with the declarative language side is that uh, when I was working at Adobe, they had a declarative language called MXML and uh, 
they, the idea was always, oh, we'll have all this great tooling and, uh, you know, you'll be able to design your UI and, and, and it's just going to write the MXML for you, uh, which was all great. But then it's like, okay, so then if I do need to take the escape hatch and go actually write some declarative code, what are the, what are the chances that my changes that I've made are going to allow me to go back to the the UI builder and use the UI builder, and this is part of this. Part it's of this. a one way door. It's exactly once you leave once that, you, once you, you can't use you, the UI builder anymore. That's right. That I saw in the very first UI builder that I used, which I can't remember. I mean, it was way back when Windows was getting started, and yeah. somebody came up with uh, a a GUI builder for you. Yeah. And it was like, oh, this is awesome. I don't have to go in and figure out all these arcane Windows things because it would do it for you. But then at some point you were done with that and you had to go in and start doing it by hand. And it was a big help. And then you, but it was just one, it was one way. You yeah. could not reincorporate that. Yeah. So there's always been this promise that declarative languages are going to allow us to build great tools. And, I, you know, I have seen some great tools, but there's always like that point where it just stops working. Mm -hmm. And and so people are, are creating declarative languages and are using um, languages like YAML to do all sorts of things with the intention. Here's what I hear oftentimes is, is, oh, we're going to be able to build such great tooling around this it's because possible. We, it's possible and they never do it. They never actually deliver it. I heard this for MXML. It was, oh, with MXML, we're going to be able to have round trip tooling. They, right. That was the, so they knew the problem. They, they, and they thought that they were going to be the ones, the first and only ones to actually create round trip tooling for declarative, for declarative, for declarative so language. And they you, never did. They why never, do you it never shipped. think this of course. problem happens again and again? What, what's your hypothesis? I think in some ways it relates to, the previous conversation about developer experience, because I think that, that I've, I've done, I've done mm. exactly this. I'll tell you a story. So, uh, I, um, I decided to create a workflow tool when mm -hmm. I was at Salesforce. I don't know why, but, uh, because I want to solve, solve hard technical problems. And so I start creating a JSON based workflow language. Mm -hmm. Like, why did I think that that I needed to create my own JSON workflow language. It got to the point where I was implementing my workflow engine had to implement Boolean logic that was coming out of JSON and interpreting that. And, and so in some ways this was just this like slippery slope of, okay, I need this. And so I need this. And so I need this. And all of a sudden I have my own programming language basically. And so there like, I can totally see, you know, it's, it's your because reasons thing. It's how did I get to where I was? Because reasons. Mm -hmm. It's like this one step at a time, solving one technical problem at a time without pulling my no head up to picture. think about the big picture and what am I really doing and what does the user actually want uh, led me to where, where I got to. I, um, I had this experience, well, with build tools in general. Cause I've learned a bunch of build tools over time. And the initial one was make. Yeah. And I used a lot. I mean, I mean, I still sometimes miss the, the straightforwardness and speed of make. Yeah. Um, but um, in particular GNU make, which was an extension of make, you begin to see, cause you, you get this little suspicion that, well, 
we're not really just looking at dependencies and doing things. There's, there's all, it always seems like there's something sneaks in. That's a programming problem. Yep. And I could see where the creators of GNU make gave up. And it was like, they realized, Oh, what we need is a programming language and we're building a build tool. Yep. Oh, and then they stopped yep. and you just see where they hit that wall. Yep. And I feel like that's happened in a bunch of places. Build tools are a really fascinating example of this because I think we have seen it so many times in build tools where it's like, okay, we're going to start, start with this declarative language, whether it's XML based. So ant was XML based. Um, yeah. Ant was XML based. It's been so long. Uh, but then you, you reach the cliff of what that language, what that created language can do, and you need more power. So what do you do? So what we did in the ant world was exactly what you're describing is someone, I think it was James Strachan, maybe, uh, the creator of Groovy. I think before he created Groovy, maybe getting this totally wrong, but uh, someone created a XML based logic language called Jelly. And so in your ant build, you could write XML in XML, you could say if whatever, so you could do loops. You could like so. All of a sudden, we had XML, an XML-based programming language, just to be able to get us, uh, get us a, a rickety bridge across the cliff that we reached with with what we could do in Ant. I knew a lot about Ant once, and yeah, it was just like why. Because XML was cool, so we should do everything in XML. Yeah, you remember when yeah. XML was like oh, yeah. the next great thing? Oh, oh yeah. gosh, yeah. And so, why not build a programming language in it? Right, and and try at the time try and say anything negative about XML, and you just got everyone jumped on you. Oh no, yeah. why would you say XML is bad? Ugh. Yeah, so build tools are fascinating because we've seen exactly this play out over and over and over again with build mm -hmm. tools. And what's interesting about Gradle, I you know, I have issues with Gradle, but thank goodness in Gradle, it's based on on actual general purpose programming languages. Right. And so the tooling is actually great. So I use now Kotlin for my Gradle builds, and it is Kotlin. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have to learn a new language. IntelliJ understands my build files. You don't have to worry about running out of gas with whatever language they've created. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so for for all of my issues with with Gradle, I do really appreciate that they said let's just use general purpose, a general purpose language, and forget about this whole declarative thing because we're never going to build the tools for it anyways. The my experience with. Um, Emacs when I first started using it and and then well this was GNU Emacs not Gosling Emacs and um, Stallman had built it on top of Lisp and that really impressed me because it's like oh he started with this powerful tool that he built on top of it and the tool wasn't going to run out of gas yeah and it seems to me like I I mean it always seemed seemed to me like if you were going to create a build tool you would want to start with the programming language and build the tool on top of that. Yeah. And people have tried. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, and, and, and I think this is going to be the, the same way that Java brought garbage collection of virtual machines into the mainstream. I think maybe now, you know, people will start with build tools and go, let's use, let's build on top of a language rather than, you know, this yeah. other approach that we've been using. So maybe it's mainstream enough now. And I think it, it, in the past, it was hard to go this route yeah. and it still is. I, 
initially, initially it's easier to create your own language, mm-hmm. but then, but then you realize at some point that your language is creeping towards a general purpose language and you are spending a lot of time as a language designer. And so, so I think there is, there, there is this initial um, thing where it seems like the right way to go because it's, it's easier at the beginning. So that seems like a problem in general with a DSL. Anytime you go, Oh, we'll have this domain specific language. How do you know? I mean, typically a DSL is created. Well, I guess they have internal and external DSLs. Right. So like what Kotlin creates is an internal DSL. So you still have Kotlin right there if you want to use it. So this is where Scala and Kotlin and I don't know what other examples there are, where they they explicitly, one of their goals was to make it easy to build DSLs so that you can create a, a subset experience of the general purpose language but you could always drop down to the general purpose language when when needed, and I think transparently that, without doing anything special. That's right. right. It is it is Kotlin, it, right? Kotlin, so you benefit the Kotlin from, DSL is Kotlin. So right, and so like you can just put it into um, IntelliJ, and you get the benefits from it. That's so. right. And so in the case of Gradle, uh, I I believe I heard that that there were language changes that Kotlin made to make it easier for. Gradle to have a nice build DSL, um, so there was a coevolution of the two, mm-hmm. which which I think ultimately produced a, a really nice language for defining builds. Right. But it is just Kotlin. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's the um, the extension lambda. Yeah. And exactly. I, and that gets used heavily in right in well, Kotlin build in uh, for, for DSLs, Gradle's Kotlin yeah. builds. Yeah. 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 And that was like one of the very few features that they invented rather than looking at other languages and saying, oh, that's really popular and works well. We'll adopt that feature. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been very helpful. Um, So I have a I've been working the last week or so on doing some tooling to well, one of the things I'm doing is I'm translating the old thinking in Java fourth edition into so that it's on LeanPub. Nice. Um, um, so it's you know nicer for reading devices and things like that. And so I'm building a lot of tooling, and I always do that in Python. But one of the things that I've started to notice as kind of a strategy or a theme is what I'm sort of calling the um, conversion object or the conversion class because what i start out doing is writing a bunch of functions and functionality and just tweaking with things and then it gets too messy and what i have discovered is that by putting whatever i'm doing because usually i'm I'm trying to convert this thing say it's a, a piece of code into a piece of code which is all broken down where i understand Say, for example, oh, this this is importing a package or it's using and has definitions in it or it just has a main in it. You know, it's got all these aspects. And I start out by writing functions to do that or just writing straight code. And then it's just too messy. And then I I realize, oh, you know, what would be nice is just to do all of this stuff in the constructor. And here's the important part is to keep all of the artifacts. And I learned this from functional programming because, you know, you never, one of the kind of bad idioms in 
Python because it's so dynamic as you can say, foo equals this. And then the next line you go, foo equals this, which often operates on the old foo and can produce a completely yeah. different type. Yeah. And it's a very you know, shorthandy way of doing things. And it's tempting to do that because you don't always want to be making up identifiers in, in your head to do things. Yeah. But it's like, then if you want to go back and go, oh, wait a minute, what happened here? Everything's been overwritten. Yeah. It's, it goes yeah. back to our old days of saving memory. So, yeah. you know, with functional programming, you go, I make a thing and that thing never changes. Yeah. And if I want to, if I want to transform it, I make a new thing. Yeah. And so what I've done in this um, idiom or whatever, this uh, object converter is that I keep all of the intermediate values. And it turns out that that, including the, the value that was passed in that I initially worked on, turns out, wow, that's really useful. Because anytime I'm, say, wanting to debug it, or I discover, oh, there's this other piece of information that I want, it's all there. Yeah. And, but the object is really only the constructor and the creation of all these um, properties yeah. that then I can go look at and say, oh, is it so, but, but my main code then becomes very clear and easy to understand. I, I take say the code listing and I convert it into this thing. And then I ask questions. I go, oh, does this thing have an import? Oh, well then I don't care about it if it doesn't. Right. And does it have a main or does it have a, you know, all these things. And I just yeah. ask it and the code becomes really clear. And I feel like that isn't, I mean, I don't believe I've ever seen that before. Yeah, I think um, in Java, we the pattern for doing something similar was maybe the visitor pattern. Oh, the visitor pattern. That one's a, that one's messy because what that's actually for is to be able to add new functions, add new functionality without. So you have a you have a hierarchy and you want to it's basically you want to add member functions to that hierarchy without touching the hierarchy. Right. Yeah. And so that doesn't, how, how do you see that as being the same? Explain that to me. So you, I think um, you're thinking about it as, as adding methods, but I think it can also add state. Right. And so what, what in your use case, you have, you have some, some state, you have some, some uh, object, and you want to to add some things onto that as as it gets visited or something. So maybe that's wrong. I don't know. So there's a few other thoughts that I had around this. Um, maybe maybe visitor patterns not a good uh, analogous um, thing for it. So type classes are a way to maybe do something similar, where you um, you need to convert from A to B, and so a type class can be can provide the the conversion converter automatically. Yeah, yeah. I don't think this is even that complicated. This is really just a code. This isn't. I wouldn't call it. I don't know. I'd hesitate to call it a pattern. It's more of a strategy for yeah. solving that problem, and it just it goes from a bunch of messy code. You know, so it's pretty simple. It goes from a bunch of messy code to a much simpler because you're you're looking in the constructor you you dissect and do all yeah. the things and just keep making more and more properties yeah and then once the constructor is done all the information that you want has been 
automatically extracted yeah. and then you just ask that object yeah for yeah. those properties yeah. so it's like yeah. a really simple thing but i don't think i see a lot of people hmm. doing it and i've found it i don't know i i guess i've been so in, in your use case you want to keep track of kind of the the steps that it's gone through well and so that you can i i'm following the functional practice of never throwing anything away but making a new thing every time you yeah. do it's like oh i want to know what the first line is while i leave you know i have all my lines broken up and i look at the first one and i put yeah. this in there maybe parse it a little yeah. and then i store that and then as i'm going yeah. i'm just all i'm doing in the constructor is doing this um deconstruction of whatever object you've handed me yeah. and saving all of the intermediate state in the process of doing that as properties that then I can just go say, yeah. what's up with you? So I think the other possible pattern in functional programming, which I don't, uh, I don't know much about and I need to learn more about it is the applicative pattern. Hmm. And I think that, so where I've seen applicative used is on uh, validation. So if I need to, uh, if I, if I get an object and I want to run it through a bunch of steps in the, in the case of validation, I want to make some, some, uh, tests essentially against that thing. What an applicative will do is keep track of all of the, the results of those applications of different validations. And, and so that then at the end I can, look at it and ask it, oh, did this particular validation rule give me all of the validation uh, mm -hmm. results back um, together? So yeah, it's, I think so that's kind of similar to what I'm doing. Um, and it isn't, you know, th this thing is, this isn't like a brilliant thing. It's just, I've discovered that it makes my code much easier to both write and use and understand. Yeah. So it's like, it's, I, I would call it too simple to call it a pattern, right? It's just, but a it can style. be very helpful. Yeah. It can be very helpful because I keep, I, I, you know, look at functional versus object oriented. And of course the combination of the two that we see in languages like um, Python and Kotlin and, and Scala is, um, and then you start going, oh, well, if I'm not in Java, which says everything must be an object, that's the only way of thinking about things. How do you decide? And what I usually find is that if I start out by writing just basic code, and then I see, oh, here's some repetition here, I'll put this into a function, or this is awkward, I'll put it into a function. And that's actually another thing I want to talk about shortly, is um, then sometimes I'll get to a point where I look at it and go, Oh, this thing wants to be an object. It would be actually a lot easier. And the object doesn't necessarily have to do much. Like in this yeah. case, all it needs is a constructor. Usually there's a two string so that yeah. I can make sure that you know everything is working right. But all it needs is a constructor to solve these problems and store the information and properties so that I take this thing, put it yeah. in this object, and then I go, Hey, what's up with you? What, what yeah. can you do? Or, you know, are, am I interested in you? Um, so I'm just kind of like looking cause I'm not in the camp of, oh, objects are bad now, throw everything out It's objects. Sometimes they're quite useful. Yep. It's just not all the time, yeah. which is what Java told us yeah. that it's like, and small talk, you yeah. know, and Java was being based on small talk. So one thing that is also useful in this, um, 
this uh, use case mm-hmm. is if you if you are given creating an object with constructor parameters, and then you have some things that you may interrogate or uh, process from that constructed object. Uh, if you have a language that supports lazy evaluation, like mm-hmm. Kotlin or Scala, I'm sure many mm-hmm. others, then you can actually make those things lazy properties. So let's say that in your code path, you may not actually interrogate each different piece and want to actually evaluate each piece. So instead of doing it on your constructor, mm-hmm. you do it as as laz- lazily evaluated properties, and then that can be a, a more efficient usage. So rather than doing it every time, all the time, you just do it as they're, as they're actually evaluated. Right. If you start running into performance problems, you can, you can tweak it, which is. Well, if the language makes it easy Easy to do, do, then, then maybe you just default to making um, these things lazy. Yeah, you could, you can definitely do that kind of thing in Python, but it's not, it's not as trivial as saying. By lazy. By lazy. Yeah. 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 Um, or I mean, they, it's lazy valve. it has both lazy and late initialization. Okay. Yeah. Whereas late initialization is really, well, actually both of them allows you to avoid making something nullable while still late initialization yeah. is much more like that. It's, it's like, um, I guarantee that before you use this, it will be initialized by some other piece of code. Yeah. Um, and if you don't do it, then you get an exception that says, "Hey, you, yeah. you didn't. Your code is wrong. You didn't yeah. initialize this before." But um, but then you never have to say that it's nullable, and then you don't have to do those null checks yeah, all nice. the time. So that's yeah. nice. That's um, cool. But yeah. So the how are we doing for time? Oh wow. Okay, we should probably bring it to a close. Yeah. Then. Yeah. So well, I feel like we. We stayed on the happy path. Yes. <laughs> Help people uh, well, see the happy path in a new way. I would say that we're envisioning the happy path. That's right. You're that's what we're doing. And that's, you know, and we, I think at some point we can actually, uh, after we've done this for a while, we can talk about how we came to that name and yeah. how, how it has some interesting little twists. Our vision for the happy path. Our vision for, yes, we're looking, we're, we're seeking the happy path is what we're doing. <laughs> That's right. But it also has that, uh, that connotation of programmers ignoring the problems and just wanting to go down the happy path and get those little endorphin bursts and not worry about all of those problems that can happen. Yeah. So. Great. Well, this was fun. Yes, it was. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Maybe in a week. (laughs) Sounds good. Okay.